Thank you, Pastor Tag. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you today. I spent um, last week in a town called Winnipeg, Canada. And if an interesting thing, you, can, um, you can't fly there directly. You got to go all the way over to Vancouver, which is way out of the way. But you can fly out of there directly. That would tell you something about the winters in Winnipeg. <clears throat> Everyone wants out but not in. When I landed on uh, Sunday, well, be Monday morning at 2 a.m., it was eight below. That's uninhabitable cold. <clears throat> it had been 28 below a few days before that. So they were feeling like it was a balmy, warm. And uh, the highest it got was 30. And they were coming out in t-shirts talking about how wonderful this is. So those, those folk are built different. <laughs> I was there um, at a church called Park City Church leading a, a Simeon Trust. So about 40 pastors were working on how to preach epistles. And boy, I was very encouraged by these brothers. And uh, God's doing a great work there. I'd encourage you to, to pray for Canada and pray for Park City Church. Uh, but today, I'm very thankful to be back home and, and with you. Uh, this morning, we begin our journey with the ancient Israelites as they journey out of Egypt and head toward the promised land. Every book in the Bible is important. They're all equally inspired by God. But some books carry particularly heavy influence because other books in the Bible rely on those books. And this is one of those that stands out as especially significant. If you would open in your Bibles to Exodus chapter one, and if you don't have one, underneath the seat in front of you, there's some blue Bibles, and on page 26, you'll find the passage I'm gonna read. Twenty-six has got me all choked up. We'll be um, exploring today uh, Exodus chapter 1. Let me read the first couple of verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtalah, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. My suspicion is if we were today to sit down to write a book that would endure for thousands of years, and be of tremendous importance in the history of the world, we wouldn't start with a list of names. I mean, why begin a book with a genealogical record of Jacob's sons, 12 of them, and their wives? Well, at one level, we might say that this is cultural. Those of you in the room from the eastern half of the world will appreciate 
this and know more of this instinctually than those of us from the West. Family matters. Family's significant. Where you're from, who you're connected to is important. Past lineage, we might say, has much to do with present life. And yet, if we look at this paragraph, there's more here than merely the record of a family tree like you might put on the wall in your house. This lineage is of theological or spiritual significance. You see, Exodus chapter 1 verse 1 is not actually the beginning of this story. To get the beginning, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where it all began. If you've not read Genesis ever, or maybe not lately, I would encourage you to get together with another person or two and sometime in the next few weeks, kind of chart out how would I read through, at what pace can I get through its 52 chapters? And however long that takes you, give yourself to it, and I think you'll find our study through Exodus all the more powerful, having first seen or read the the initial story. Exodus, you see, is the sequel. Now, how do we know that? Well, the names are all connecting us back to the people in the book of Genesis. Another way we know that is easy to miss in most English translations of Exodus chapter 1. This was originally written in Hebrew, and in the Hebrew text of Exodus, the very first word is the word and. Now, it's not translated because that's poor grammar, but the book begins with the word and. So it literally reads, and these are the names. You see, Exodus is the continuing record of God's work begun in Genesis. Now, more than useless trivia, there's actually something pretty important about that. It's super important because we might inadvertently miss the breadcrumbs that are given to us in verses 6 and 7 if we don't know the backstory. So verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Back in Genesis, we know that Jacob and his family had fled Egypt because the, fled from Israel to Egypt because there was a severe famine in the land. Almost certainly, there was a period of years where there was a drought and the crops couldn't produce. They had no fries to go to and purchase, so they literally ran out of food, and they had to flee somewhere. They went to Egypt because Egypt had done a far better job of preparing. They had stored up grain. And so they went there initially just to survive. But then as is often the case with refugees, they ended up staying. Over time, they settled down. And as the passage told us, eventually all 12 brothers and their wives and their kids, all of that initial movement that had happened, that whole generation died off. 
Now, it doesn't feel like it to us, but this was a moment of crises. If we could somehow hear a musical score playing behind the text like you would with a movie, that verse that says they all died, the end of verse 6, all that generation, there would be dark, ominous music playing there. Why? Well, because back in Genesis, God had promised. He made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that He would be their God and they would be His people and they would become a great nation and they would live in the land of what we today call Israel. And that through them, through their descendants, the whole world would be spiritually blessed. But all these years later, not only are they not in Israel, they're in Egypt, of all places, and they're refugees, and they're settling down and getting comfortable. They're getting used to it. They like it. The conflict or the tone there that we would hear in this musical score is one of, is God a liar? Because it doesn't, it, it doesn't look like what he said would happen is happening. That's the tension. But, but, the word but in the Bible is often a pivot to the intervention of God. In fact, three different times in this one chapter today, we're going to see that word happen at a moment the text turns. It's certainly so at the start of verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful. The, The family giants, the patriarchs, the father figures, the one God made all those big promises to are dead and gone and rotting in the ground. But the people of God continued to reproduce. Even in Egypt, they were multiplying. And the Jewish population was growing so rapidly that these refugees rather quickly became a force to reckon with. Now notice in verse 7, three critical words. The word fruitful, if you're writing in your Bible, you might even circle them. The word fruitful, the word multiplied, and the word filled. Those are critical words to the whole book of Exodus. Fruitful, multiplied, and filled. All right, you got them in your mind? Now, with those three words in your mind, hear this from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, that them as Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, I'm dating myself here a bit, but as Scooby-Doo said, <laughs> what do you notice? The same three words in exactly the same order. God's creation design was that his people would procreate and that by multiplying, they would spread little image bearers all over. They would fill the earth with his glory, shining forth his character and his work around the world. 
That was the Creator's initial design. But a mere two chapters later, Adam and Eve fell into sin. They rebelled against Him, just like all of us have. And while they retained something of that image of God, that like a dirty, filthy mirror in your bathroom, that image became marred, harder to see, broken. And so we're wondering right at the beginning of the Bible, three chapters in, is the whole thing going to fall apart? Is God's plan not going to work? Are they not going to be blessed in such a way that they are fruitful and multiplied because it seems like they don't deserve it? But they did. They did, in fact, multiply. And as the story of Genesis unfolds, um, here's a few things to look for when you read it over the next few weeks. We get to Genesis chapter 9, and there's a man named Noah, and he gets out of a big boat, and God says to him, Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then Genesis 12, a couple chapters later, a very special version of this promise is given to a guy named Abram, and he is told that his, from him, his body, from his progeny would come enough people that they would fill the earth and that through them, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that promise then is like a thread you could pull through the entire Bible. Later, the same thing is said to Isaac. In fact, check out Genesis chapter 35. It'll be here on the screen. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from your body, and kings shall come from your own body. Now, friends, Genesis is a long, long book, and I could literally keep this up the rest of the day. This promise comes up over and over and over and over, but I hear at least one or two of you've got something you want to watch later today. So this is just a summary. These words, be fruitful and multiply and fill, are critical. The creation blessing became a promise that God would create a new people group and that through that new people group would come spiritual blessings that would spread over the whole world. Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 is very carefully in seed form telling us it's happening. God's keeping His promise. God's doing the very thing He said He would do. In Egypt, of all places. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph had received favor from the last Pharaoh and become important in the government. But now that there's a new dynasty, a new Pharaoh, and often when the administration changes, things change. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. 
And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithoms and Ramses. One of the terrible realities of life in a fallen world is that as refugees flee from one crisis, they very often eventually end up in another. Especially if in their host new country, they multiply rapidly. Right now this is happening in Europe and quite a few European countries are very threatened by the amount of immigrants coming there. The host country can feel threatened, and what happens when people in power feel threatened? Not that we've ever seen any examples of that here. When a fresh dynasty began in Egypt, the new Pharaoh felt fear. Fear. Now, that might seem counterintuitive to you. I mean, here's the guy with all the power, all the authority, all the might, a world superpower, and he's afraid. He's afraid of refugees. He reasoned, if they keep multiplying, they're going to overtake us. This is simply old-fashioned paranoia. Pharaoh's plan A to deal with the refugee population growth was to enslave them. Yet this wasn't just a battle between Pharaoh and Israel. It would be really important to keep that in your mind as we work through this book. There's a sense in which Exodus is playing out on two stages. There's the drama or the stage here on earth in which Pharaoh is battling Israel, but that is merely a derivative battle. There's a more important battle in the heavenlies, a battle not merely between Pharaoh and the Israelites, but between God and Satan. How do we know that? Well, friends, history tells us that the Pharaoh considered himself to be the sun god, Ray spelled R-E. This God was known to be the sun God, the chief of all the deities in Egypt. Knowingly or unknowingly, when Pharaoh determined to lead God's people shrewdly into oppression, he was picking up the cunningness of the serpent in the garden. The battle in Egypt, beloved, was ultimately a battle between God and Satan. God is set on the good of His own, and Satan's aim is always to bring about the ruin of people and to steal the glory of God for Himself. It is impossible to understand Exodus unless you see those two stages operating simultaneously. And through it all, the intent is that God would be known. But the question here we're meant to be asking is, will God or the false satanic gods of Egypt be more powerful? 
Will God keep the promises He made? Or will these other gods, these other gods that appear at the moment, slavery, oppression, hardship, will they win? As Exodus unfolds, I want to encourage you to pay attention to that theme. You'll see it again and again and again. This was a tough turn for the Israelites. They went from a prominent, peaceful place to one of oppression. Can you imagine what that would be like? You'll notice verse 12 begins with that wonderful little word again, but. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad or filled the earth. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their life bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field, in their work. They made them ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It's a lot of work, 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 work. Imagine, imagine the back-breaking toil of enslaved brickwork. Pharaoh is bent on destroying the people of God, breaking their spirits, wearing them down. Imagine the whipping, the beating, the shouting, the slapping. This is racism at its worst. The racism that happened in this country wasn't the first place that that has happened. We see it right here in the second book of the Bible. When people in power are afraid, they do incredibly cruel things to people. But God kept on keeping His promise. Do you see that in verse 12? There's this incredible picture with this repetition of the words, the more, multiple times in that verse. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they filled Egypt. They were fruitful because God was supernaturally causing them to be. We know that because the book of Psalms tells us that. Psalm 105, in fact, puts it this way. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob summoned, Jacob sojourned into the land of Ham. Doesn't mean they had a lot of, right. And the Lord made His people very fruitful and made them stronger than all their foes. You see, church, the slavery, while horrible, while real, while unjust, could not stop God's promise to multiply His people. Exhausted from slavery, they were still like rabbits. Despite opposition, 
God multiplies his people according to his promises. I think that's what Exodus chapter 1 is saying. That's its big idea, its main point, that despite opposition, God multiplies his people according to his promises. One author this week I read put it this way. His name's David Murray. He said, God's promises will be battered, but they will never be broken. That's good. Beloved, we know today on this side of the cross what the New Testament tells us, that every single promise of God in the Scriptures finds its yes in Jesus. That all that God has promised us is available and accessible and ready for our enjoyment as we trust Christ. Isn't that great news? Just let your mind for a moment wander. Yes, the preacher said that. Wander into the very promises of God. There are so many. They find their yes in our Savior. That's why we sing, come Lord Jesus, come. We're ready, ready to be with Him. So Pharaoh's plan A doesn't appear to be working, right? In fact, it's causing more blessings to come on the people in terms of their growth. When plan A didn't work, he moved on to a much more horrific plan B. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other, Puah. If you have a daughter, just recommending, don't go with Puah. Verse 16, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. With the uttering of a few sentences, Israel's plight had gone from comfort to slavery, and now from slavery to slaughter. The two midwives that are named are most likely what we would today call charge nurses meaning they're responsible for all the other midwives who are taking care of helping women as they had their children. And Pharaoh ordered them to oversee the murder of every Jewish male at birth. So the idea was, obviously this is pre-ultrasound days, you didn't know what you were going to have. So as she's waiting, attending to the mother, the moment the child emerges... If it's a baby, she was to kill that baby boy right then before the mother could take him. If enacted, then this, of course, would have a genocidal effect. Verse 
Now here's our third, but, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son, so notice what's happened. No longer is this said to just two midwives. It's said to every living Egyptian. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. That's an efficient way of murder. An infant obviously can't swim. But remember those two stages. The Nile River was regarded among the top five most important gods. Saying, cast these into the God who will take care of them. Who will murder them. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I think these are six simply incredible verses. Imagine this morning we're not sitting in a room, climate controlled, sipping on our drinks, thinking, reading a book, but actually living there experiencing this. The God-fearing midwives wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Murder of any kind, but murder of an infant is a special kind of evil. Surely this is among the darkest of sins. So the midwives refused. Whatever the cost, they said, we're not doing it. Now, because you're going to talk about this in gospel communities, discipling relationships, and then those of you who aren't in any of that, you're going to wonder. There is much ink that has been spilled over verse 19. I mean, the speculation in the commentaries over this is ridiculous, the amount of pages they spend on it. Some assume... That verse means that the midwives lied and that because they lied, God blessed that lying. I'll address the speculation in a moment, but let me just ask you this. What if we simply took the text at its word? What if there's not a weird switcheroo here? What if it's actually true? I think it's quite reasonable that they meant what they said. And that when Pharaoh asked them, what's up with this? They gave some of the truth, but not all of it. What I mean is this. 
Maybe those two spread the word. Don't, moms, don't call us midwives until the baby's already born and in your arms. Because we've been told that when the child's born, if the child is a male, then we're supposed to kill it. So we're not going to do that. You, you, you work through this, have the baby, we'll come help you after. Call us after. I think that's the most reasonable way to interpret this passage. But even if they did lie to Pharaoh, in other words, even if they were there attending to these births and simply did not do what Pharaoh told them to do, and then straight up, bold-faced, lied to Pharaoh, the passage does not say that God blessed them because they lied. You've got to have that thought and read it into the passage. God could have blessed their protection of the babies in spite of the lie, not because of it. Do you think you have ever done something good with a hundred percent pure motive? Like there wasn't just a little sprinkling of, I want to be thought a particular way for doing this thing. God blesses good things we do in spite of our sin all the time. Now, however this worked out ethically, the thing I think that's more important is what I want us to not miss is uh, the great remarkable irony that's present in this paragraph. Think with me about this. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the one with all the authority, all the power, all the might, all the levers to pull. He's afraid. And two little ladies, slaves, with no power, with no authority, they're not afraid. The only person they feared was they had a right reverence of God. And because of that right reverence of God, they didn't fear even the Pharaoh. This is incredible. Beloved, there's a powerful lesson for us here. An appropriate fear of God chases away the inappropriate fear of people. In fact, the only way out of the fear of people is to give yourself to the right awe, respect, worship, fear of God. If this resonates with you as something you need to think through, then that connection class that Brandon spoke of that starts next week, this would be a wonderful thing for you to go to. When you live with the reverential awe of God, then you come to understand there is nothing ultimately that people can do to me. And therefore, the fear of man simply evaporates. Imagine, brothers and sisters, what your life would be like if you didn't fear people. Can you imagine that? I don't fear people. 
Oh, really? Here's a few examples of ways I see us fearing people. Friend, why do your grades matter to you so much? Like at the level of obsession. Why is your appearance of idolatrous importance? Why do you find it difficult to say at school or work or the gym, I'm a Christian? Why does your mood go up or down based on how many people hit like on a picture? And for crying out loud, what do you think FOMO is? It's the fear that I didn't get included in that. Therefore, they must think I'm not da 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 Do you see those are all examples of ascribing to people a worth, a weight, a value that only God has. And when we get those flipped, when we fear people instead of God, then anxiety, overwork, undereating, I mean, I could just go down the list. The only way out of that is to revere and honor God, to recognize He is good, He is holy, He's lovely, He's merciful, He's mighty, He's in charge, and to ascribe to Him that place of awe. If you begin to take that step, I think it's more like a dimmer than a single switch. Your, your life will slowly light up with a wonderful joy that will not be yours if you allow the fear of people to rule your life. Yes, generally speaking, most of us are not afraid of people in the sense of being physically harmed by them. But that does not mean that the fear of man doesn't rule us just like it's ruling Pharaoh in this text. Take a lesson from the midwives. Notice this passage doesn't even give us Pharaoh's name. But here these two midwives for the rest of time are known. Take a lesson from them. Live with an awe of God not in awe of people. As you do so, you'll find a supernatural courage welling up within you to do things you never, ever, ever dreamed you would do. Isn't this a cool chapter? Church, I'm so excited to walk with you through Exodus. Lord willing, we'll spend time every Sunday morning doing exactly this from now until the fall semester begins, there is an endless treasure troves of truth in this text, the book of Exodus. But our last couple of minutes, I'd like to encourage you to concentrate 
in the upcoming week on two particular thoughts. So you might snap a picture of these as they come up on the slide or write them down or burn them in your mind. But here's a few things to consider in terms of um, how to put this Exodus 1 into practice in 2023. Let me give you two thoughts to concentrate on. Number one, God keeps His promises, often in rather shocking ways. God keeps His promises often in rather shocking ways. What we've seen today in Exodus chapter 1 is that 70 refugees fled down to Egypt so they wouldn't starve. And it's in Egypt, in a foreign land, where God began to multiply His people exponentially. It wasn't before the suffering. It wasn't after the suffering. It was in the suffering. That may strike us as rather surprising, but what you'll find if you read this thoughtfully is again and again and again and again and again, that's exactly what happens. It is most often, brothers and sisters, that you will see the power and presence and promises of God being worked out, not when your life is easy, but when your life sucks, when it's hard, when things are tough. That's how the biblical story works. That's what's happening here in Exodus 1. It was as Israel was being impressed, oppressed that they multiplied even greater. God's promise wasn't dammed up, unable to flow down into the people's lives until they got out of Egypt. No, it's precisely in Egypt that they began multiplying. It's easy to say God is good. When do we tend to say that? When we've gotten what we wanted. When life is easy. When's the last time you heard somebody say, I had a horrendous, horrid week. God is good. Is it less true? No. The goodness of God is a fixed fact. It has nothing to do with how your week went. God is good all the time. All the time? That's right. I think we should knock it off. Stop saying that unless we're going to say it all the time. It's easy to praise God when things are easy. And that makes the world think our faith is an inch deep. But what if we had a joyful, fruitful, vibrant, happy life in Christ, even when our lives are rather pitiful? What would that say to the world? Beloved, whatever you're going through, and with a room with this many people, there are People right now listening here, going through tremendous difficulty. I want to say to you, God is good. And whatever you're facing, remember, the Scriptures tell you, Christian, every promise of God finds its yes in Jesus. Look to Jesus. 
fill your mind with the Gospels. That you might know who He is and what He's done for you and what He's actually promised you. That you might be sustained and open that struggle to your church family. That we might walk with you. Because sometimes in the midst of it, it is very hard to say God is good. It might be you need some others around you to remind you God is good. God keeps His promises. When you are old, if you live that long, like me, you will look back, Christian, and I can guarantee you, you will say, I saw the Lord's hand most clearly and grew most evidently when life was hard. That's what the Israelites came to see. It is the story of the Bible from beginning to end. Our suffering will eventually end, but not yet. Don't bemoan it. What we read together, you confessed from 2 Corinthians 4, light, momentary affliction. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Number two, the big idea for this passage, despite opposition, God multiplies His people according to His promises. We've seen that language in Genesis. We've seen it very prominently here at the start of the book of Exodus. Now, I know it's Sunday morning and you got football on your mind, but real quick, put on your thinking cap. I'm almost finished, I promise. Thinking cap's activated. Can you think of anywhere else in the biblical story where repeatedly, prominently, in a book, do we find that language, fruitful, multiply, and do we see a filling? Good job. The book of Acts. What happens in Acts? Well, just before Acts, this person, pre-existent God, always been, Jesus, leaves heaven, comes to earth, becomes a human being in order that he would live a perfect life in our place, fully obedient to the Father. And then because he did that, he was able to also in our place die on a cross, a sufficient sacrifice. On the third day, he rose again in victory, demonstrating that he is Lord and King and Savior. He's the one the Old Testament always pointed forward to. And then he returned to heaven from where he sits and rules and reigns today. And then at the start of Acts, he said, wait, my followers, wait till I send the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit fell, filling the people of God with his power and presence. And then what happened? Well, as the hammer of persecution whacked that Jerusalem church. As it was multiplying, what did they do? They filled the earth, taking with them the saving gospel. And this exact same language is used all over the book of Acts, that the church spread, it multiplied. Not as man and woman had sex and made babies, 
but as Christian shared the gospel with non-Christian, and new life was born. We can literally say today that we're sitting here having this conversation because Nero decided to persecute Christians. It's amazing. Friends, there is a small sense, and with so many internationals in the room, it's hard for me to even talk about this. There is a small sense that the American church is something we should be concerned about because it's getting harder to be a Christian in the United States. We see just tiny, tiny, tiny hints of some forms of hardship. It's nothing relative to our international brothers and sisters, but it is there. And there are many, many churches around this country turning from biblical doctrine to accommodate culture. And there is some sense in which we should be concerned. But we need not turn to politics to try to solve that. And we need not fear the end of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because like Nero's decision to whack Jerusalem, whatever whacking we get is only going to cause the true church to spread. Despite opposition, God is multiplying his people. And Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not prevail. May we Trust him in that. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. It's incredible that it's so old and yet so timeless. And we know that that works not because we bend and twist it, but because what you said in Exodus 1 is what you're still saying today. You're Word is alive because you are alive. I pray that you'd now take your word and apply it to each one, that we might know you more and live more courageously in you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.